you see my Christmas decorations? That's I right. I do. I do. That's uh, you're not the only person I've heard recently that's put their Christmas stuff up already, though. Yeah, do what you got to do. If at least you've got stuff on yours. One of my one of my team members, she was talking about her Christmas things that she has up, and she got her tree up, got the lights all the way on it, plugged them in. You already see the mistake here, and realized that none mm-hmm. of them work. Didn't work. Yeah. Who does that? I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm you know I, I'm going to plug them in first because I'm too lazy to exactly. figure out. We, we wouldn't have done that. No, no, especially not since you can buy them at the dollar store. <laughs> I know. Well, my wife um, was smart enough to get us a pre-lit tree that keeps me from having to do that until it doesn't work anymore. And then we got to throw the whole tree away. Listen, technology is unbelievable now. So, you know, they have it where you don't even have to connect the plugs. You just stick the, yeah. the pipe in the hole and it lights up. But wait, it's what I got this year. There's a tree that grows <laughs> from seven feet to nine feet with a little remote control. Oh my gosh. So, seven feet, push the button. so right now I'm at like eight feet, 10 inches. <laughs> so it's touching the seal. It's perfect. I thought maybe you're going to start off really slow and just inch it up every day. So people literally thought the tree was growing inside your house. That'd be great. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're supposed to be able to you know decorate the top and then push it up it's pretty neat they just That's, needed more light on it that is brilliant though uh, and, and then had you said that so because i was again i was going from the whole point of well you just get an adjustable tree that fits whatever size room you're going to put in but what you just said makes it even more ingenious not having to grab the step ladder for all the crazy stuff yeah. That's amazing. It's a new fad. Now, see, I only found one in all my searches. So then there was like, quite a bit of pressure that I needed to buy it because I'm sure the, the technology is not perfected and it could just disappear on you. It could be gone. In disclaimer, the reason I needed a new tree was I moved and I had a 12-foot tree before, which is a monster that I would put together by myself and my four-foot ladder. <laughs> I always came out very bloody one way or another, but, um, I moved and now I don't have those ceilings. And so by default, the office may be inheriting the 12 foot tree. Well, we had somewhere then, to go with it. I know it's a waste otherwise, but then I'm paying people a day to decorate a tree. <laughs> yeah. But one could say you're calling this a bonding experience for your team. No. I think what we're going to do is bring a bottle of wine and do it after patients one day, all of us. Absolutely. That sounds like a great plan. That sounds like a great plan. Um, All right. So tell me what we're doing. I do want to talk about how you arrive to a place where you're going to make your practice so specialized that you do one thing, because that is a little bit different from a lot of the practices, but I mean, it's also an incredible model that you're pulling off. The other thing is how you developed an educational program that you turn around and use that as another form of income for you. That's something that a lot of us aren't doing. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get into some dry eye and of course doing that sort of thing, uh, because I'm always trying to learn more and more new stuff that I can. Uh, so that'll help out for that. And I'd like to talk about adversity, uh, because you live in a place that is going to possibly get wiped off the face of the planet once every summer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds like a fun talk, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It sounds like we should have a glass of wine for it, but yes. Or maybe <laughs> a good old it. bourbon. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us.
On episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight One Day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear One Days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice, not fear of the disease associations with myopia, is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm Ted McElroy. Today, I have a very dear friend of mine, Crystal Brimer. She is from Wilmington, North Carolina. She has a phenomenal dry eye practice, uh, which we'll get into and talk about. Um, but the, the fact is that every time she and I are around each other at a meeting somewhere, we tend to giggle a lot and have a great time. And uh, I'm just thrilled to have you with me today, Crystal. Thanks for being here and giving me some time today. Oh, Ted, thank you so much. I am not as much of the interviewing type, so uh, it makes it much more enjoyable with you. And I don't know that I'd be sitting here with anybody else. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, the way I kind of do these things, it's more just sitting around and having a conversation. And I, I told somebody, I actually, this is the North Carolina, I think is running away with the title of how many people I've interviewed from North Carolina. I think they've interviewed six people so far in the last month and a half, uh, including you, Amir Koshnevez, Ali Koshnevez, uh, Daryl Glover, Max Rayner. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out and I apologize if I have, but I mean, it's, I can't believe in people in North Carolina I'm talking to. Uh, so obviously y'all have got something going on there and company. <laughs> yeah. But what I was telling uh, Max last week when I was talking with him was, I really don't care if anybody listens to this or not. This is just about me sitting down and having a conversation and catching up with somebody and learning something at the same time. So it's, I don't care if anybody listens or not, to be honest with you. <laughs> All right. I like it. We can do this every Friday if you want. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So what I want to do to start off to get everybody a, a good feeling about where you are in life, uh, tell us your origin story. I mean, you can start from wherever you want to start to where you're at right now. Well, that is a pretty broad topic. Um, wow. Come on, narrow that down for me. All right. Let's say, why did you decide optometry looked like a, a good gig? And okay. all right. So I'm a North Carolina girl and I was at Chapel Hill an undergraduate. And after two years, they make you decide what you want to do. And I had, I knew I wanted to be in medicine, but didn't know where I went into one of their old, old buildings and it was the counselor's office and there was nobody in there, but it was just brochures, brochures stacked on top of each other, rubber bound together. And I was on the floor in this old, old stinky building um, going through. And I found this little brochure for optometry rubber bounded together at the back of this cabinet. And I walked out that day and surprisingly, I see some, saw somebody I knew, which at Chapel Hill doesn't happen that often because it's so big. And I said, well, I decided what I'm going to do. <laughs> and that was just it because once it came to my mind, I don't know why I hadn't thought of it before, but everything made sense. Um, I had been a minus 10 myope and grew up going to the doctor every six months or so. And it was such a big part of my life. And it, I, from that point on, there was nothing else I really wanted to do. So, okay. Well then what, who were some of the losers that day? Who did you say, uh, -uh I'm not going to do that. Pharmacy. Um, and I think growing up, I wanted to be a veterinarian like every little girl does. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct about that. Yes. I have to say, I can't tell you how many times I've asked young ladies in the chair. So what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm looking for ideas and they always go, I want to be a veterinarian. I'm thinking, oh man, I hope you marry rich because, <laughs> uh, if you're just going to be treating dogs and cats for the rest of your life, you're not going to make any money, dear. Oh, that's sweet. 
but and interior design which still there have been bad days at work where i've i've really given it a second thought <laughs> well, but so i've got to tell you um go ahead no go ahead and please well so as i got out and i went out on my own and and i've actually been through many facets and environments of working as an optometrist and it wasn't because one thing didn't work out or the next or the next. Some of it was quite planned. Some of it was construction delays where and non-competes where I was either working on a military base or a side-by-side or you know a commercial uh, contract, uh, a referral center, all these things throughout my journey. And then went out on my own early on and have had private solo practice for, oh, since 2002, basically. Um, but there have been a lot of rough days in that, right? And, and I talk to so many doctors now, and I know that feeling of wanting to be more fulfilled or wanting to be able to not have to sacrifice so much at home and so much personally to be able to make it successful. And that's part of what led me to the, you know, the, the consulting passion that I have. But here's what I'll say about my journey. Not even that long ago, even a few years ago, I thought about, man, I enjoy decorating so much. <laughs> And if I thought I wouldn't starve at it, I might just walk away and, and try my hand at it. But then fast forward a few years and I was on a conference call and somebody said, hey, this is your icky guy. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, it's, I thought he said, it's, it's what wakes you up at night. And I thought, yeah, it does. <laughs> but what he meant was it's why you wake up in the morning. And I Googled it and it was, it was the neatest thing. It's these four circles and one circle is what you love to do, what you're good at, what you can get paid for, and what the world needs. And when any two of those cross, it's nice, but it's not fulfilling. There's something major missing. And when any three cross, you're really good, but it's there's still a void. And when all four cross and you're good at it and you love it and you get paid for it and it's what people need, it really feels different. And I think that I've finally gotten to that place it's not perfect, but man, what a difference in pushing through and figuring out what is my, my specialty, what's my passion, what's my drive, and how do I actually pursue that instead of just keeping it in the back of my head going, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, you know, when you decide past the wouldn't it be nice, what is it that pushes you to really do something about it? Because, I mean, let's face it, we've all had the wouldn't it be nice moment and did mm -hmm. nothing about it. So for me, let's see if I have it. I have my little book <laughs> and I think it was just writing it out. And I actually have a page on it that says, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I, I listed out everything. And I'm like, you know, if I, if I lose money on A, B and C, what's the worst thing that can happen? And then finally just said, uh, you know, the opposite of that is what are my goals here? What do I want to accomplish? How do I want my life to look? And it's so different than, than what it was that you sit there and weigh the risk and benefit, just like we do in a patient treatment. And, and it's silly not to move forward and take a risk. So how often are you rewriting that story? Well, I have a small, really special book that's just for epiphanies. <laughs> and so when it's a big deal, I'll carry that around with me for a little while and, and wait for it. <laughs> okay. but then I've got bigger books where I'll write down anything. And so it's like a stream of consciousness of, all right, what areas need improvement? So I rewrite the, the daily mess multiple times to try to get better systems in place, but to really rewrite the story and the three-year plan and the five-year plan. I don't do that very often. I just want to rewrite the logistics to keep trying to get to those plans. So this sounds like, you do a fair amount of journaling and for all you men in the audience, journaling is just a manly way of saying diary. Um, but I mean, really it, it, you, you sound like journaling. How did you stumble upon journaling? I mean, what is, and what does it do for you? See, I don't even call it journaling, but it's true. I just have a special book. I write it in. <laughs> um, 
I think because I'm very analytical and methodical and it can get away from you and your, your mind can just be racing in the middle of the night and going in a thousand different directions. And for me, I just have to stop and write it down so I can get clarity and so I can have movement and not just always be thinking about the action plan and not actually taking action. Um, and I'm, I'm bad at that. I have lists on all sides of me right now. <laughs> and there are certain things that are on multiple of the list, which makes no sense. But for me, it was, it was about quieting um, all the random thoughts and making them more pursuable, more clarity. So I know what my answer is to this one, and I'll give it to you after I hear yours. This isn't, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. It's a, but how often do you find that you're able to take these things are rambling around your head and just put it on a piece of paper and how often does it really make it truly just make it a lot easier to hold? I think that it gives me peace of mind for the moment to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And even if that's all I got out of it, that was valuable because I really only pull those special book out whenever it's getting overwhelming and where I've got too many projects going on and I don't feel like I have enough time. And so it's, it's a way for me to visualize everything working out. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, like back, me, it feels out of control again and saying, all right, where, where did I stray? Yeah. <laughs> I thought I had a plan. <laughs> for me, it's more of, if I, if I can go ahead and get this out of my head now, I can possibly put it away till a little bit later. And this isn't, I'm trying to kick the can down the road type of moment. It's that I just, I'm sitting there laying in bed and that's all I can get out, you know, so I've got to either write it down and then I've got to also spend a few minutes, maybe almost getting into a thankfulness moment. It, it, Cause let's face it, the stuff that keeps us awake at night, isn't about being thankful. It's, it's about, you know, some kind of horrible thing that's going on at work or with our family. And for me this week, um, I had vividly and abruptly been told that I was not paying attention well enough to our salaries in the practice, um, meaning the other people. Um, and Mm -hmm. as I told one individual, I gotta be honest with you. The only time I think about your salary is when you either come in here and ask for a raise or the day that I offer you your job. And Mm -hmm. I don't have a really good system for that. So on Monday evening, uh, realizing that on Tuesday I was going to get confronted with this at some point, I'm laying in bed. I get myself out of bed just to write it down on the journal or, you know, somewhere. Yeah. This is what you need to be thinking about. So you can stop thinking about this right now. And then on the next line is I've got all these wonderful people that I get to work with every day. And I should be a little bit more thankful for them, not just in telling them I'm thankful for them, but in showing them that I'm thankful for them that did not make Tuesday any easier, but at least it put me in the right frame of mind to get to where I needed to go next. And I, and I was able to fall asleep, which is another big part of it. Maybe a little too, too open for a confession on this one, but I mean, but I think, I think this is something all of us business owners struggle with. I mean, because we're carrying the weight of our entire team on our shoulders. Well, and not only that, not to stereotype ourselves, but if you're in that position of being a business owner, you, you are driven. And this is one of the side effects of being driven, right? Is you're, you're constantly processing and, and pushing forward. And, and you're exactly right. I do the same thing of just writing it down so I don't have to keep playing it in my head or don't have to keep telling myself, well, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Um, yeah. My worst thing at nighttime is, is playing conversations, like oh, yeah. future conversations, past conversations, all of it. And then during the day, you're like, my gosh, why was that so haunting? Because it really shouldn't have been. <laughs> well, I would like to say that mine wasn't as haunting as I thought it was going to be, but it was just as haunting as I thought it was going to be, unfortunately. But because I was willing to step into that really uncomfortable place um, today I sat down with the, I will call, uh, this individual, the main, um, main affected individual in the entire group of it. I sat down with her and 
talk to her and explain to her some of my things. And I, and I don't think I had the right to explain on Tuesday. I, I, I had to get to a point where I could have the right to explain things to her by Friday. Um, we had to go through her being hurt, her being angry, her being um, feeling like she was neglected and then go through a point of, okay, what, what do we have to do to fix this? And I don't mean fix it as in lay a bandaid over it is, you know, what's the first step? What's the next step? What's the next step? And today, even though she still hasn't given me the big point of, which is what my raise needs to be. Uh, and I told her, I'm not going to give it to her until she tells me what she thinks it should be because I have nowhere to go if I don't. Um, but I, but at least we got to a point of, I've explained to her part of the things that have gotten to you that where you are is because you kind of believe that you are that other person still. And I see so much more out of you. And I want you to believe that too. Um, we had her in the wrong place in the practice for a long time. That was part of the problem in identifying where she should have been. Uh, now that she's in this right place, we moved her from optical into the clinic. Yeah. yeah. And now she's in the clinic and in the shortest span I've ever seen, she gets it. I mean, it was like, we're not having to tell her anything. I mean, she's, she probably could do what we do if she just gave herself the chance, that kind of thing, you know, and I think it's going to take some urging. And I I told her, I said, I I have no doubt one day you're going to walk in here and say, I've reached my level of ceiling here with you, Ted. And, um, I'm going to go somewhere else and I'm going to be really proud for her. You know, it's going to hurt, but I'm going to be real proud for her. And, uh, but that's, Long story on that one, but I really think she's, I, but, I, but I think the journaling side of that, if I don't have those conversations on a piece of paper, I can't have that conversation face-to-face as easily perhaps. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where you were going also with the point of, you know, we have these conversations in our head. Hopefully yours aren't as verbal as mine are. Mine are literally just like you and me talking, talking when I'm in the car, you know? <laughs> I'm always having the same, I'm saying everything that I think I'm going to say, but I say it out loud. Fly on the wall, Ted. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Oh, just, it's an ugly, it's an ugly story. But anyway, but how many special books do you got there? I mean, how many have you got? Do they all have a special purpose? The neurotic part. Well, the one I bought at a museum and it has little colored pages on it. So that book is only for epiphanies. And then I have the bigger ones that are for anything, but, um, Talking about staff, I'll tell you the one thing I was thinking about this week, we're struggling uh, a little bit in certain areas. And I sat there and I'm like, gosh, it's so easy to get frustrated. And I'm so frustrated. But is this more frustrating to take this situation and try to elevate it and go somewhere with it? Or would it be more frustrating to start over, you know, with someone else and giving up? And, and man, when you put it in that perspective, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. And so it just helps me have perspective of, all right, what can we do? Like you said, of changing positions or changing demeanors or whatever it is to try to make it work. But that was my comment on that. So what's, I want to dig into that a little bit. What's, what's the more frustrating part of starting over? Is it just having to go through the process of finding another individual or is it literally, and you know, obviously you're not identifying somebody. So this makes it easier for you. Or is it literally, um, that you, you cherish this individual enough that you want to try and fix the problem, or sometimes it's a little bit of both. Well, and it would be a different answer depending on the person, right? Of course. So uh, definitely there are instances where the, you cherish that and you know the potential and it's unwavering. And so you figure out whatever it takes, but I'm not talking about that situation. I'm talking about where, all right, eventually this could go either way. And, you know, where are the pain points now versus later? But I think both the finding someone that's a high quality, the training, the patient adaptation period of, of having turnover. And trust me, this is not my, um, not my specialty. It's not my strong suit compared to so many other aspects that I feel more comfortable with, but, you know, you, you learn from failures too. So (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I've had lots of, of learning opportunities in the past as well. Yeah, yeah, it makes it tougher. It does make it tougher. Let's talk about something I'm good at, Ted. Okay, well, 
So what are, no, no, I'm just, I know what you're good at. Um, so, okay. So we'll get into that. You, you go through your different phases of optometry. You, you know, you spend some time on a military base. You do this, you do that. You, you get to, how'd you pick Wilmington? What, what was so special about Wilmington? I wanted to be in North Carolina. Um, again, I'm a go-getter. So on my spring break, fourth year of optometry school, I went to New Orleans with a friend just with her family for a night and then started in Western North Carolina and ended up in Wilmington. In three days, I had 15 interviews. <laughs> they were just back to back and I renewed my driver's license and I got back to Memphis and I had driven 3,033 miles. That's what I remember. But my very last interview was in Wilmington at a referral center. I got there an hour early and all I wanted to do was go put a hat on and go to the beach. And so I said, I'll just be sitting right here. And, it, you know, it turns out I fell in love with the town. I thought, well, if I'm away from home, but I'm at the beach, maybe my family will come visit me and it, uh, it won't have to be just me going to there. So that's that was part of it. And just the challenge of a referral center. I was intrigued by that at the time. What what part of your practice now um, excites you the most. And I'm not talking about the overarching part of it. I'm talking about the nitty gritty. What is it that's really exciting about what's making you want to get up and go in every day? That's, that's easy. It's these patients that have been so desperate and just struggling for so, so long and the gratitude and the, the recovery that you see on their face, it goes so far beyond their eyes. It is, it is their soul. I mean, it's just, um, I, I've had patients who were suicidal. I, I've had so many patients that just weren't functioning in life because of their dry eye pain and to see them turn around and to get to be a part of that and know that, you know, I was fortunate enough that God used me when it could have been anybody. Um, it's special. And, and that's why I keep doing it. You, um, but at some point you had to have, realized that's the way to go. So what was the, where was the line in the sand moment where you said, I'm going to not do primary care optometry anymore. I'm going to just focus on this. And how did you figure out you could afford to do that? Because that's a, that's a big, big risk. So I'm going to give you two answers and try to do it pseudo articulately. Um, the, the bottom line is it was overtaking the practice, but how I got there, you know, originally I was a startup practice in this location, um, sidewalk sign that said free dry eye screenings, but I bought the equipment that I needed. And I had been recruited to do the dry eye protocol for vision source. I'd already been doing clinical trials and things like that. So that's all I cared about. I didn't expect much out of the practice the first year. And so every patient was basically like a study subject to me, because at that time we were really testing out just uh, nutraceuticals, different things and saying, all right, how do, how do we make this easier? Um, and then I picked my head up out of the sand at the end of the year when I was working on my taxes and realized we did really well. Um, first year, I mean, we, we grossed 465,000, something like that. I was only there two thirds of the time, was gone the whole month of September. And we had 29 referring doctors. And I said, how in the world did we do this? Um, and it was because I was so focused on the outcomes. And then I thought, well, how did I get such good outcomes? And I looked back and said, all right, I got the outcomes because the compliance was there. Because you can have the best treatment in the world, but if they're not going to do it, you've got nothing, right? So then I said, well, how did I get their compliance? Because I really felt like whatever I asked them to do, they'll do it. And it was because I took the time to do the patient education and do it well and become that partner with them. They understood what they were doing and why, and they did it. Um, and I had a means of showing them that. And I think it was just that beautiful combination. And so the practice, uh, it, basically the dry eye took it over. I was still doing primary care, uh, OCTs, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, all this stuff, optical. <laughs> And the other side of this answer, that's how I got to that point. But emotionally, I was so frustrated and I wasn't feeling that connection with the patient that I do now because there was so much stress in between us. 
and they would come in worried about me or asking me, are you okay? Or boy, you've lost a lot of weight. (laughs) And, and I was trying to be everything to everybody. And that's, it was never a normal practice with normal balance. The reason it felt so uncomfortable trying to do it all was because dry eye was such a big driving force in the practice to begin with. And so to be able to nurture that and let it be what it was supposed to be and, and to let my passion come out about it and still maintain all the other, it was very frustrating. And it felt like everything I touched was falling apart. And so I got that little book out and I wrote down the financially, I did a report on every fundus photo, every pair of glasses, every refraction. And I took those numbers out and said, if that just disappeared, what, what would it, what would it look like immediately? Um, And I went, the young lady that's my right hand, she's been here two years. And the first thing she did, she had optical experience was pack up my frames (laughs) And that was, that was two years ago in November. And man, everything is so different from since then. And I'm not advocating people pull out their optical. I'm just saying in my scenario where the balance was so off and that's where my passion was and it was going well and um, everything else just felt wrong to try to pursue when I didn't feel like I was able to do it all well and be everything to everybody. So do you think it was because everything was distracting you so much that you really couldn't focus on that part of your um, calling, I guess I would say? It was distracting. Yes. Even on a daily basis of, all right, I'm doing a dry eval and then you're running, doing OCT and doing all this. I didn't have the support at the time to let me be the doctor. And so when that's the case, it's especially, it's especially distracting. I think you know what I mean? Um, like running into the optical myself and doing things, stuff like that. But I didn't feel like I was doing the dry eye part even as well as it needed to be done because there was such a a need for it in our community and no one was doing it. I was doing more than anybody else, but I wasn't doing it as well as I knew I could and providing as much as I knew we could for the patients, the experience, the A to Z. And so it was going to be hard for me to ever achieve that with my limited support and being divided personally as much as I was in a hundred different directions. You talked also about developing the dry eye protocol for vision source. And that was one of the, one of the, I think that was one of the first protocols that we put together at vision source. For those of you that are not vision source members, that's, this is not a vision source commercial. Um, that's fine. <laughs> but I think, I think you need to understand though, what it takes to, to put a program like this in place, what all became the development? How, how, how did you sit down and scratch that out? Did you just take what you were doing in the practice and put it on paper and then devise it? Or, or was it more than that or less than that even? It was months of doing it in the practice and just the knowledge you gain and the experience, a lot of it anecdotal, but it was purposeful. It wasn't like I happened upon it. I was doing things and prescribing things for a reason so that I could see the outcome and see the differential between one patient and another. And then John Shackett and I sat down and and our first little sit down was probably 10 hours. (laughs) And we sat there and we just, we had a a giant conference table. It was on a cruise, but um, (laughs) And everybody was out, you know, zip line and stuff. And we were in the library (laughs) and we sat there and and we started at it and said, well, you know, what about this? If this, then that good, better, best, mild, moderate, severe. And and we just said, how's the, what's the easiest way to understand this? And, and then from there, it just kept blossoming and we kept working on resources and things like that to support it. Um, but really everything I did in the practice was started to revolve around how can I help make this easier for other doctors? So vision source aside, it just, that started to, to spark that. And it was during that time where I, I went to Oculus and said, man, this is an amazing piece of hardware, but the software has got to be easier and started working on that platform and making it easier to, to acquire and to educate the patient and give them something that was tangible in their hands. And then that sparked this, like you said, this calling inside of me, because I felt like that was one of the most just fulfilling things I'd ever done. 
Um, you know, we fast forward and, and doctors have it in their clinic, but they're not utilizing it. And so I realized how difficult implementation is. And, and because of what we just said, all the distractions in the whirlwind of getting through the day, it's hard to, to escalate in that environment. And so I said, gosh, we're all trying to do the same thing and starting from scratch. That's not necessary. We're recreating the wheel. And I spent six months developing my 300 page manual of, all right, we shouldn't all have to go through this stage. We need to be able to have this core foundation and then tweak it and adapt it to the different practice environments and modalities. And so it just developed this passion that started as really in the clinic, in the office. And I am equally passionate about giving to doctors as I am to patients and not just for the ripple effect that, you know, really used to be my reasoning behind it of, of seeing that, but it's not that it's because I know what it feels like to be burned out. And I, and I think everybody knows that to a degree, but I see the flip side now of how vested and how happy and fulfilled I am in my practice when I wasn't before. And I want them to experience that because we give a lot away every day and you need to feel that and know that what you're doing, you know, matters. Yeah. Did, and I think I already know the answer to this question, so I apologize, but I mean, how much better did that part of you, your practice, your treatment schedules, did you get by developing this protocol that you were already, do, I mean, you were already doing this stuff. You develop a protocol. Does, how much better does that make you in doing what you're doing? I think it just made me more focused you know, more, more streamlined where you're consciously having steps as opposed to going by feelings or anything being haphazard, you know, you've got a system. Yeah. And now, I think that's, that's our biggest problem right there. You words the word, the system. So, so take it from there. Well, the problem is everybody wants it to be something that is applicable to every patient that walks through the door. And it's just not because they're not all the same. And the way that I treat it, we get excellent outcomes. It's incredible. It's 90, 95% of the time. But my method is really looking at the underlying etiology. And when I break it down like that, then the treatment decision is easy. It's just if this, then that, if this, then that. And my that is decided, uh, let's say that within a category, and, and most people, their, their primary issue is inflammation and MGD. And so within each category, here's our good, better, best. And then I tell the patient from the beginning, we're going to decide together based on your goals. Because some people want it fast. Some people want it easy. Some people want it natural. And some people want it cheap. I can do any of that. I just can't do it all. And so sometimes it's not really a decision based on severity as much as it is coming to a, a partnership with them. But I lay out the options and we decide together but depending on what their underlying issues are, you know, one might have more bacteria, one might have more allergies, your treatments are always going to be different. And that's the problem is that when somebody doesn't do a lot of dry eye, they're intimidated by being able to figure out what that cause is and know, and they just, it's just a matter of confidence. They haven't done it enough in that kind of strategic way of thinking to feel confident doing it. And so they want it written out in this easy cookbook and it still doesn't work like that. With your confidence, um, how much of your confidence has to be there to hear no as many times as you might hear from a, from a patient or a guest? It's harder in the beginning. Um, and I will say that it doesn't bother. I don't even register it now. It, I literally do not register it because for me, it's not a no, it's just a not right now. And I tell them that from the beginning, listen, here's our good, better, best. And, and the best is always typically going to be an in-office procedure, but I'll tell them if we need to start with things at home, let's do that. And we'll give it a minute and we'll see how we're doing. So to me, I'm presenting it very open-ended where I don't feel shot down. They don't feel like they're rejecting me. And it's a continual conversation. And every time they show up, I'm going to debride the lid and express, and they know it. And it's going to tell us what's our status. And if our status is not acceptable, there is going to be a conversation of here's where we are. Here's our options. And I'm going to throw those options out again. 
and then they can, like you said, they can reject me again, but it just doesn't feel that way. And I think maybe the reason I don't ever feel that way is the way that I'm educating them. I've got the, that 5M and I put the images up there in a collage view where I'm, I'm showing them multiple things at once. And I say, all right, here's where we are. I don't have any color in, in the tear film. You see your tears are evaporating really quickly. We need more oil. I squeezed, nothing came out at 10% participation. Here's our options. You're already on an, you know, an omega-3. We can do this, this, and this. And I just throw it out there again. And it's not a big deal, but it's a cause and effect. And when I present it like that and show them the pictures, I don't get a lot of rejections, Ted. <laughs> well, you know, I, I get that. But what I'm I'm looking at it from a point of of the majority of our colleagues yeah, and the confidence that we have to build, you know, because that's a muscle. It's not something that just happens naturally. Yes, that is a complete uh, truth. So here's what I say to them in my big manual. And I'm referring to that because it, it is in writing. There is a, what to say on every one of them. That's what I was working on now is my 10 pages of new treatments. And it's, it's basically a product page with a contact, what it does, who it's for, how to dose it, what to say. And then I pull in all the what to says, and it's like, I don't know, 10 pages, and that should be everywhere in the office. So when you're in the beginning and you haven't seen the results over and over and over again, and you're not pulling from that to, to restore your confidence, it goes from scripting. And it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing. You, you know that it works. You've heard that it works. And maybe this is your very first patient. Just show them your excitement of this new technology or, or you bringing it into the office and let that be the, the foundation of it. Because later on, you're not going to have to look for confidence. It's going to be so automated that it won't feel like a sales pitch. And I think that's where you can say, oh, my confidence is hurt because I got rejected. Well, only if you were selling it. If it's really you're putting your, your, yourself in a position where you're just the messenger and you're showing them what's there and you're discussing the options, then it, I don't think it should feel that way even from the beginning. Yeah, and I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, I heard Tom Bowen, I, I, you may be familiar with him. He was uh, one of the principals at Williams Marketing for a long time. I think he's still there. Uh, he said to me and a couple of other people stand around, he's, um, you know, optometrists are so afraid of being salesy that half the time y'all aren't even doing your job. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. We're so worried about spending their money for them that we won't let them spend it. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I think that part of that is the fear of rejection. The, I don't want to hear no. It's not that you're even, you're not even so much worried about whether or not the treatment's going to work. You just don't want to hear them tell you no, you know, so the best way to keep that from happening is just to not talk about it at all. And what I've done at that point is I have just now kept this individual from getting something they really needed, you know, and right. I've actually it made somewhere. it worse. I've made it worse or yeah, or I've sent them somewhere else is what I've done. Yeah. Fully agree with that. You, you develop this protocol. You now have another form of revenue almost for your, for yourself because now you're going to teach this to others and it's not going to be, I mean, cause you went through all the work. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, so what's it like to say, wow, I've got this other thing in my practice. That's not really on me treating my guests. It's me teaching other people to treat their guests. Where did, where did the bell go off on that one? How did you figure that out? Why did I want to do it? Yeah. I, before the, you know, I, I helped develop that or design the, the 5M platform, the new platform software wise. And I spoke about it at a meeting and they had just a couple hours of exhibit hall time left after that and sat down and, and they sold more than in the history of the company since 1895 after I spoke about it and it wasn't even ready yet. Right. I had got on a plane to Germany very quickly after that meeting. So fast forward a year and people weren't using it. People had bought it and not used it. And it broke my heart because that was my baby. It's what I got up in the middle of the night and wrote down in my book. And I had a whole book just for that. <laughs> I carried it around with me everywhere. That was my baby. And they weren't using it, even though they had already bought it. And it just killed me because I knew the potential that was there and that's when I looked and said, we're all trying to do the same thing. Why do we have to do it 
individually and instead of pooling our, our resources, getting a good foundation and then tweaking it from there. And that's why I developed Dry Eye Institute. That's the full on reason is because I, I just realized it in that one moment of what a huge miss it was. And there's great programs out there. Even now there's free programs, there's CE webinars, all this stuff. It's good information. But what was lacking was the the part that goes in your hand, you know, the part where they felt like, all right, not only do I have mentally a clinical protocol and a foundation of what am I looking for in the slit lamp? How can I make it so visible to me that I can't not see it? Um, that, it, you know, it's always just popping in there and, and it's like a cartoon where these diagnoses are jumping up out of your head. So one, to have that clinical protocol, but, but more than that, to be able to go back and be able to give your front desk resources on how to script, to talk about procedures and talk about products and, and talk about why insurance doesn't cover something and then have the billing resources where they know what codes are payable and how it should look on a HICFA form and have the marketing resources where they've got customized materials that are ready to go for them to walk you know, down the street, drive down the street and, and create advocates for them. Um, to have a USB with all these forms that they can you know, put their logo and their name on it. Just, it, it needed to be more than mental. It, that part needed to be there, but there had to be some physicality to this where um, it, they didn't have to start from scratch. And then on top of that, I think just the inspiration factor. I had a text yesterday. They text me all the time, every day. And it's great. But I had one that said, you know, ever since that day, nothing has been the same. And, and part of what that was, was actually the live part of watching me do a dry eye eval and seeing the interaction. And if you've not, you know, if you've really only been an exam with yourself or a few other colleagues, you only picture it the way you do it sometimes. And to be able to, to be a fly on the wall in the room and see something wildly different, it just apparently holds a lot of weight. And for me, it's just, it's just what I do, but it's so much fun to think that other people do it that way now. And they talk about scripting. They talk about how they explain things to patients. And that's the core of it. Because remember what I said about why we were so successful. It was the compliance and the compliance was from the discussion. And so it seems so simple, but there's a, a lot that they take with them from technique, scripting, protocol of just clinically what to do, and then foundational of billing and marketing and patient education and staff training and forms. So now that you have seen what can happen, mm -hmm. um, and this is going to be just a, you know, a wild guess, of course, but on what percentage would you say that eye care in general is still treating this disease wrong? What percentage of practitioners? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're talking ophthalmology too, right? We're talking, yeah, we're talking both of Everybody. the O's, both of the O's. Oh, I don't want to use the word wrong, but inadequately. Yeah, that's a better word. That's a better word. 92%. I wouldn't disagree with you. And I mean, I still catch myself doing it too. You know, we're getting a hurry. Just throw yeah. some tears at them. You know, um, I had, I had Bobby Science on not too long ago. I don't know if you're familiar with him and he had written an article, uh, for one of the journals talking about flares. Uh, you got this, you got this guest, they've been treated, they've spent thousands of dollars in your practice because they've had all this treatment and that treatment, you know, and it's not that it's a bad thing. I mean, this, they're getting great results. And then all of a sudden one day it just flares back up on them, you know, and I think that's another thing that, that I've had a number of people come into my practice. They've gone to some other eye doctor, regardless of whatever it's a ODMD, whatever they've had all these treatments, they've had all these medications, you know, that was going fine. All of a sudden it goes bad on them and they're sitting in my chair because it went bad on them for that one week. And they said, well, it just must've been a failure. And his point was that we need to be spending some time telling these people there are going to be some hurdles that are still coming just because I've done all these things doesn't mean this disease is gone because it is never going to be gone. Um, you need to understand that it's going to require continual treatment 
at some level. Um, it, do you find that that becomes a stumbling block for a lot of the people that you work with as well? For colleagues, definitely. Um, the way that I have addressed that in my practice uh, has worked out really well. Um, day one, when they come for dry eye eval, I actually made a 120 page patient education book. And the very first page, it says the basics and it says right there, we are not curing anything. This is yours and it's going to ebb and flow and um, continue your treatment. Even if you feel better, all these things, we're going to start today, but it's not going to be rainbows and unicorns tomorrow. It's just setting the stage and you go in a couple pages and it starts with this, this big title page that says lifestyle. And it talks about outlook and perspective because I have so many patients that are just crippled by this, but, but sometimes they've set it in their mind to fail, you know, and you've got to kind of address that and, and get them out of this funk, but then going into stress and anxiety and depression and pain gates and lack of sleep and diet and hydration, but basically your inflammatory foods, your anti-inflammatory foods, your preservatives in beauty products, your device use. And what's been beautiful about this is it puts ownership on the patient. And so they realize this is not just something I can flip a switch and make, make it go away. And I tell them we will get results, but we will be limited in how good we can get it according to these other things that are going on because the eyes are basically an end organ. And if your body's inflamed, your eyes are going to be inflamed. And so it just gives them a different perspective where they're, what they're expecting from me is different. And then when they have these flares, they also realize what else is going on in their body. So they'll come to me when they have a flare or they won't come. They'll come in later and they'll say, well, it was really bad for a couple of weeks, but I was on vacation and I was drinking a lot or I was eating a lot. Or they'll say, but my sciatica was flared up or but my allergies. And it's like they get it and they're not coming to me angry with me that they spent a bunch of money and all of a sudden they had a bad week. And so that has just worked beautifully. And it, like I said, it changes the ownership where they're, we're in this together and I'm counting on them to do things at home as well. And then the rest of the book, it, it has a section on good, better, best. And I tell them, I say, everything I'm about to tell you is written down in here so that if it's three in the morning and you're frustrated, we're not moving as fast as you want to, you can pull it out and say, well, here's what we're doing. Here's what we could be doing. So when you talked earlier about rejection, <laughs> Again, I don't worry about it because it's right there and they eventually are, are, are ready and they're asking me for more treatment. And then the last section is treatment details. And so it's all the data behind why this warm compress works better than a different one or this vitamin or, you know, amniotic membrane. And I tell them, if you want to read that, you can, it's there. And later on, when I mention something and I say it's in the book, you go get it out. It's in there, <laughs> but that's helped a lot. Yeah. You know, and this isn't just a, you know, throw a piece of paper at them. You gave them a book. I mean, that's, that took a lot of time and effort. And I think that they would understand, especially since your name is at the bottom of this, you know, cover or whatever, I don't know how you have it bound, but they would, they've got to go, Oh my gosh. I mean, Dr. Brimer really must know what she's talking about. She wrote a book. It's, it has been, um, freeing to be able to give it away without a doubt. And I tell them there's some typos in there. Don't worry about those, <laughs> but yeah, it's professionally bound. And I don't, I, I mean, I've got a stack of them at the front desk, but I give them away on the dry eye valves. And then the only people I, I sell them to like dry eye Institute doctors that come, if they want to have them in their office, they can buy. And I just drop ship them from the printer, but it has been really nice. And I think one day, of course, this is the problem with us perfectionists. <laughs> we wait for perfect to do something, but you know, one day when I make it better, <laughs> and I perfect it. I might do something else with it. But even in my practice, it has completely changed everything about our our relationship with the patient. They know I care, and even if you didn't write it, if you're handing them that, one, they know that you care, but two, they know that it's important because it validates it. It's full of studies. Every one of those sections like depression, it showed or sleep, it showed studies of how it correlates to dry eye. Then it showed you tips on what you can do about it. So the whole thing was, was just to help them get their perspective. 
you know, this is you, you, I don't care. You, you say you're a perfectionist, but I mean, you mentioned perfectionist and ignore the typos in almost the same conversation. So I don't think you're as much of a perfectionist as you think you are. And I think also, I mean, I mean this crystal, I, I think one of the things that you've done really well, I, I a friend of mine, Audrey Nelson, who's, um, she's a chief operations officer for a practice up in Indiana. She said at a meeting we were at not too long ago, an idea is worthless if it's never implemented. And I have a feeling that you have a really, you, you do a lot of implementation in your practice, probably more than most of us do, which is very impressive. We implement there. There's no doubt about it. So <laughs> but is that it might be part of your nature. Or or is that just part of your nature or is that part of your team's nature? Or I mean, where does that, you know, where does it come from? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but. No. Um, we implement, but it's not as quickly as I see it in my head. And I'll give you just a silly example. I finally, the other day I, I told my assistant, I was like, I want something that looks like a trick-or-treater bowl. It's glass. It's about five inches tall. And I want uh, up neck samples vertically stacked in there with a sign coming out of the middle that says, do your eyes feel heavy? <laughs> and on the front of it, I want a picture of me before and after. And I want it sitting there at the counter for them to take like candy on a trick or treat night. So sometimes implementation doesn't have to be a big deal. Sometimes it's just getting somebody to help you put something together that all of a sudden triggers a a next level of implementation. And, you know, that's the, I think that's the key though. And we all get so busy going back to what you're talking about with perfection we want it to be so just absolutely stunningly perfect that it just never gets done because it, yeah. it, you're never going to get there. And I think that's, I mean, let's face it. We all, most of us became optometrists because we're all exact and we like, you know, numbers. Well, I, I'm not a big fan of numbers, but I mean, we like these <laughs> nice little neat boxes and everything has a place and every place has a thing. And uh, I think that's one of our, one of our gifts, but also one of our biggest curses, uh, at the same time. So I don't want to take all afternoon, although I will, if you let me, um, uh, but I, I do want to, uh, let you have your life back. So we've spent about an hour talking right now, and I would like for you to say now, okay, we're, we're ending this conversation. If you hear nothing else from me today, this is what you need to remember from what Crystal Brimer was here for today. What is that? Um, I would say if you are not wildly passionate about what you're doing, do something else. And I don't necessarily mean change careers. I mean, look at what you are passionate about and take the risk necessary to spend time doing that. Um, there's a, I, I read a lot of stuff from James Clear and one of his emails that came out, it was, said it's better to rest than climb the wrong mountain. And I think some of us, we were working so hard, we're thinking, well, we'll eventually we'll be fulfilled by that. But the reality is it, it may be the wrong mountain. And so if you don't, wake up loving what you're doing or how you're doing it fix it now because time flies by yeah that's that's great and i i think that's a perfect way to end this uh crystal i appreciate your time today uh and and just your openness and uh talking about all your books even the ones you're writing and the ones you're writing in that's uh i think that both of those are very important Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ted. I enjoyed it. My pleasure. So that was it. How was that? That wasn't so hard, was it? probably rambling. I'm sorry if I did. No, it was amazing. I mean, this is, I, I have never been let down from one of these conversations. I have never been let down with one of these conversations.
Does that mean you're easy to please? No, no. <laughs> I had known I'm, that <laughs> I'm definitely not that, but no, I just, I always learn a ton more going under these things. than I did when I, you know, got here. Uh, and I, and I'll be the Chris Wolf and I've talked about this together. Um, we get more out of this than all y'all do, uh, all the, all the time. Cause we're constantly learning stuff. It. It's, this is a blast sitting down and yeah. talking with people like this. You should start your own podcast. No, how about I just come back here? All right. <laughs> we can do that too. There are things I want to do, but yeah, I, I think about when I talk about enjoying dry eye Institute and stuff like that. And one-on-one with doctors, it's that it's just because it's relational and it's meaningful. Like somebody can walk away, me included from a conversation and, and do something different. And that's what life's about is collecting all those do something different. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right about that.